when we first started doing this work in Pennsylvania and I had just come from Tennessee in Pennsylvania, you were criminally and civilly liable if you set a fire that did any kind of damage. So it was essentially the only laws on the books that covered anything related to prescribed fire were arson. And if you set that fire, you were liable criminally and civilly as an arsonist. Hey guys, welcome to the National Deer Association's Deer Season 365 podcast. I'm your host, Brian Grossman, and deer season has officially wrapped up here in Georgia. So uh, I'm definitely a little bummed about that. But hey, there's plenty to start working on for next season. And uh, for those of you who are still out there enjoying deer season, and and in some cases, uh, like some parts of Alabama and maybe parts of Florida, you're just now getting into the best deer hunting of the season. So to you guys, good luck, and hey, enjoy those final weeks. Uh, They will go by quick. I'll I'll say that for sure. Uh, But for the rest of us who are done deer hunting for a while, one thing that may be on your to-do list pretty soon here is some prescribed burning. And that's what we're going to talk about today with Ben Jones of the Rough Grouse Society and the American Woodcock Society. Uh, We've talked about prescribed fire or prescribed burning a couple times in the past, but that's always been with guys uh, based here in the the South. So this time I wanted to make sure we got a, a more Northern perspective, got somebody on that's, that's North of the Mason Dixon line uh, to get a little different viewpoint uh, of prescribed fire. And Ben does a great job of breaking down some of the differences between, you know, burning in the North versus the South, as far as the, the timing and, and the burn window uh, regulations Um, how you can get help with burning, and just a whole lot more. So if you have a hunting property that could benefit from prescribed fire, or or maybe you're just interested in learning about different types of of habitat improvement techniques, be sure to stick around for this conversation. I think you'll enjoy it. Before we get started, though, this week's episode is brought to you by NDA sponsor BOG. Uh, BOG is a lifestyle and hunting gear brand that manufactures a, a variety of great hunting equipment including high-quality shooting rests and shooting sticks, uh, tripods, bipods, and monopods, hunting blinds and chairs, and and a whole lot more. Uh, Bog Gear is truly engineered for the unknown. To see their full lineup of products, check them out at boghunt.com. Hey, one more thing before we jump on the phone with Ben. Uh, We've just released our 2024 deer report that is absolutely jam-packed with all the latest state-by-state harvest data uh, and information on numerous national deer hunting trends, uh, things like the the legality of using drones and cellular trail cameras for hunting, um, feeding and baiting regulations, non-lead ammunition for deer hunting, uh, deer disease issues, and, and a whole lot more. And you can download the report completely free from our website. Just head over to DeerAssociation.com. Look for the NDA programs heading in in our menu. And under that, you should see Deer Reports. Uh, Click on that link and you can download the latest copy. And uh, I would encourage you to do so. And guys, with that, we're going to go ahead and jump on the phone here with Ben to talk about prescribed fire. Well, hey, Ben, welcome to the Deer Season 365 podcast. Uh, I appreciate you carving out some time to come on here and, and talk prescribed fire with us. 
but before we dive into our, our topic at hand, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what you do and, and maybe how you got into prescribed burning? Well, that's for sure. My pleasure, Brian. This is one of my my favorite topics for sure. Yeah. So right now I'm president and CEO of the Rough Grouse Society and American Woodcock Society. And um, we've been around for just over 60 years. And our our main focus has always been on forest management, sound science and forest management and wildlife management, which we're going to come back around to that, to the topic at hand and talk about prescribed fire and and what it means in forest management. But prior to coming to RGS and AWS about five years ago, I'd spent almost 15 years with our state wildlife agency in my home state of Pennsylvania. Um, There I was habitat division chief and starting in around, man, it must have been around 2007 or so, we started building a prescribed fire program essentially from scratch. There was maybe a hundred or a couple hundred acres being burned through the agency (laughs) at that time. And uh, that program has grown to pushing 20,000 acres a year, which is, uh, was a really fun endeavor, really rewarding. And we'll talk about uh, through our conversation today, all the habitat benefits that are there. But I grew up in Pennsylvania and, you know, it's, you're talking to me right now from Georgia and in Pennsylvania, uh, there wasn't really a fire culture like there is in a lot of the, the Southern states. And I I left from Pennsylvania, I got a degree in wildlife and fisheries with a forest forestry minor from Penn State. I left there in around May of 1998 and headed to Southwestern Mississippi for a gig at Mississippi State, and I was stationed on the Homochitta, and literally the first night I was there, they had done a 3,000-acre burn, <laughs> and the thing was, I get onto the management area, and there's still fire in the woods at night, so this was kind of my first big-time exposure to prescribed fire going from Pennsylvania to to Mississippi, and uh, when I was there, that was the focus of our research, helping the Forest Service plan and think about positives and potential negatives that came with prescribed fire, talking about ground nesting birds, quail and turkeys and and everything else. But then um, made it halfway home and worked actually on a grouse project through the University of Tennessee, but again, focused on forest management for wildlife and helping the Forest Service come up with, with good management plans. And um, so from the, the hard, the uh, pine restoration areas, of the deep south to the hardwoods of the mid-south, fire's been there all the way and then made it back home and, like I said, built a fire program in my home state of Pennsylvania. So fire's <laughs> been uh, it's been there with me for a while now. Yeah, that, that's funny that you had mentioned about, you know, getting started there and, <clears throat> excuse me, in Pennsylvania, you know, around that, I guess, I think you said 2007 there with prescribed fire because that was... Well, maybe just a year or two after I, I was working just before then with the Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife, which is, you know, I'm originally from Kentucky. And uh, yeah, we were we were just as well kind of getting started in that dabbling our toes in it. We, we were burning a lot of open areas because we were doing at the time what, what was really big was converting 
fescue pastures over to native warm season grasses. So mm, you know, we, we were favorite. using, what's that? That's one of my favorite activities. Converting <laughs> fescue to something worthwhile. <laughs> yeah. So, so we were using fire some with that, but that was about it. You know, we, we weren't really, um, the thought of burning through woodlands really wasn't, you know, thought of at the time um, there, there in Kentucky. And, and I know as I, I left there uh, around 2005, 2006, I guess, but they, they were slowly, you know, starting to uh, get more and more involved with prescribed fire. And, and then kind of like you, when you, when you went down to uh, Mississippi there, I, you know, I moved to Georgia to work on public lands and um, yeah, it was fire was a much bigger part uh, of, of my work environment down here. It was, uh, yeah, burning instead of burning five or ten acre openings, we you know we were burning hundreds hundreds of acres of, of mixed pines and hardwoods. So yeah, uh, yeah, it's 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 really really neat to just see the I guess the difference in just the the culture I guess of using using prescribed fire from from one part of the country to another. So and that's mm-hmm. you know that's a big part of of what we'll be discussing here is uh, you know we've had some some guests on in the past for a podcast to talk about prescribed fire but it's always been from a more southern perspective. So we we wanted to get somebody on uh that that has experience in the north and and you're a great guest cuz you you've seen both sides of it north and <laughs> south. So uh, we'll get we'll get to talk about that and kind of compare and contrast um you know, maybe, maybe how it's done from one area to another, but. Mm-hmm. Good, good, good place to start. Absolutely. But I, I guess, you know, can you kick things off by just discussing why our listeners as, you know, primarily deer hunters, but, but many of them are, are uh, you know, interested in, in all different types of wildlife and, and, you know, they're interested in managing their property for, for deer and other wildlife. Why would they want to incorporate prescribed fire, you know, on their, on their properties? When we're talking about habitat management, and this can be for deer, for bobwhite, for rough grouse, for woodcock, for cottontails, I mean, just the list is long with habitat management. A lot of what we're doing as habitat managers is managing disturbance. And having that diversity in our habitat that is created by disturbance is absolutely key no matter what we're doing. And so that disturbance can be from timber harvest. It can be from uh, things that, that NDA members frequently do, like hinge cutting, converting fescue. To other. It's all about managing disturbance across landscapes or properties and fire, of course, is one of those incredible disturbances that in many cases, we're trying to mimic a natural disturbance, like with a timber sale, trying to mimic a, a blowdown or a, or a tornado. We're trying to mimic that disturbance with something else. With fire, we are using the primary disturbance that for eons has impacted these habitats and these landscapes. So fire really has a special role as a type of disturbance and a management tool that we can use because it's not mimicking a natural process. It is the natural process. <laughs> so I think that's at the core of this discussion of why fire is important for deer habitat management and habitat management across the board. Yeah. And I mean, what, what other way can you impact, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of acres in, in such a short period of time 
uh, than, than with prescribed fire. I mean, I, I can't think of, of, of any other way you can have that big of an impact in, in that short of a short of a time, short of a window um, than you can with prescribed fire. So it, it's just a, that, a really, really cool tool. Is so, that's so important, too. And you mentioned that we, we both mentioned it starting out just doing, you know, a dozen acres, maybe 100 acres here and there. Uh, but the scale that you can apply fire is really impactful too. And one of the first places we were really seeing uh, fire applied at scale actually was in Kentucky. It was some work that the Daniel Boone was doing with ridgetop burning where they were lighting prescribed fires along these oak hickory ridgetops and then letting the fire just work naturally across very large burn units. And so you can impact habitat at scale that way. And there's also an economy of scale that we actually quantified, you know, this is important when you're in the public sector, quantify the return on investment for your habitat work. And as our burn unit size grew, it was more efficient for us to apply habitat. So if we were only burning 25 or 100 acres, that cost per acre was much higher than if we were getting that crew out there that day and burning, say, a thousand acres. So, yeah, you can impact much larger landscapes, but it's also more economical to do the habitat management that way, too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Now, I know most of our listeners are, are going to be at least somewhat familiar with prescribed fire, but but maybe, you know, maybe there's someone listening out there that hasn't been exposed to it before. So for those folks, could you maybe describe the difference between, you know, a, a typical prescribed fire Versus, say, you know, an unprescribed, an actual wildfire, because, you know, for somebody who's never been around prescribed fire and, and they might hear us talking about, you know, burning your woods, they they might have a completely different picture in their mind of, of what that entails. You know, that just the entire woods being consumed by fire. So can you talk about that? Just kind of what prescribed fire is versus, you know, a wildfire. We thought a lot about this and how we communicate about fire and what was what's the best description description of it you know prescribed fire is used uh controlled burning is another term i think we can start from the base concept of our management fires fires that we're intentionally using for management and we're setting that fire is being put on the ground more on terms that we've determined and those terms are wind dryness, humidity, the number of days since rain, uh, places where the, you know, I'm air quoting here, the fuel condition is desirable. And we're talking about prescribed burning or wildland fire at all. Fuel is that buildup of dry, dead, available material that's going to burn in the fire. So when we're doing prescribed fire, we're setting that fire on during the conditions that we dictate. Uh, we can't dictate the weather, of course, but we can dictate when we go and we put that fire on the ground. And generally, I mean, this is much less exciting <laughs> than one might predict because a great day for us is a slow, little, gently creeping fire with flame heights, maybe less than two feet. And this thing's just creeping along. You know, it, it's not the kind of thing that we see too often now on the news of a wildfire crowning out and just really, really extreme fire conditions. Our prescribed fires, good day for us, 
is as boring as it can be. That's what we want. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you definitely want it boring when you're prescribed. Learning. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I think I think most folks will be pretty underwhelmed uh, watching a, a prescribed fire, particularly, you know, through hardwoods or something where you're just like you mentioned there, you're just kind of slowly burning off leaf litter and, and debris. And, you know, you might be able to, to step over the fire line, you know, <laughs> just without yeah. getting burned. It's uh, yeah, not not anything uh, yeah, overly exciting. And like you said, that's that's a good thing. I just thought of something when you mentioned burning leaf litter, you know, kind of insert it here because I don't want to forget it. It's an important concept that I mentioned the fuel buildup and we'll go into an area, even if there's a lot of dry material and fuel, because in a lot of places where we go, fire where it once occurred naturally has now been excluded from those habitats for some, in some places, a hundred plus years. So we're hearing some about some of this on the news with wildfires, that there's this unnatural buildup of dead and available material to, that leads to these really massive fires. So when we're choosing our day, when the humidity, say, is around 40% and it just rained two days ago, and that very unexciting fire is burning through those areas, that's often just the first step. And one of my fire mentors, Pat McElhaney from the Nature Conservancy, described it as peeling an onion. So you go in with that first fire and you peel off on a very mild day, you peel off that first layer of that buildup material. And then you go in the next time and you peel off another layer. So restoring fire where it has been gone for 100 years isn't a one-time, one-shot process. Uh, it is a process in that restoration phase occurs over time because we're just kind of peeling that onion. Yeah. 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 I've seen that some down here um, and, and yeah, working with the Na nature conservancy some as well, but in, in some areas with uh, pines, longleaf pines and stuff that haven't been burned in years and years. And just the, uh, the amount of pine needle buildup in these, these woods was just amazing. I mean, just, you know, it's like walking on a, a, a mattress of pine needles and the, uh, yeah, they they had to, like you said, they're just kind of do it in in stages to where mm -hmm. you know you didn't go in and and damage a bunch of timber, um, trying to trying to burn it off with a one big burn. So, yeah, yeah or have a fire that's uh, very difficult for you to to keep in the box, as we say in the fire world, a, a difficult to control fire. Yeah, you know, and uh, it was that same build up having worked in Mississippi to tie this back to the habitat piece. It was that same buildup in those pine systems that had degraded habitat in, in the case of my studies for turkeys, because we found that turkey broods really wouldn't, hens with broods really wouldn't use anything that hadn't been burned uh, within the, the prior five years. Because at that point, then that buildup was just too much that it wasn't even usable habitat. So that same kind of built, unnatural buildup of dead brush and fuels in addition to being a, a fire hazard was the thing that was degrading habitat. Yeah. Well, why, since we're here and, and you mentioned turkeys there, can you address, uh, you hear it a lot down here. I don't know, you know, as much up where you're at, but there's a big concern about all the burning that goes on, you know, in the late winter here in the South and how that, uh, or early spring, late winter, early spring, and how that might impact nesting turkeys you know people are concerned that the the dnr or whoever's out here burning that they're, they're burning up turkey nest 
Can you talk a little bit about that? Is you know, is that a concern or or does the benefit outweigh the potential loss there? What what's your thoughts on that? That was the reason. Uh that was the primary focus of and the reason that I went to Mississippi to work. I had been for a long time reading about George Hurst and turkey research that was going on in Mississippi. And as an avid turkey hunter myself, I was just devouring that information. So as I was about to to leave Penn State with my undergrad, I started getting in touch with George Hurst in Mississippi. And lo and behold, uh, timing was right. And he had a project looking at potential impacts, especially of we'll call it growing season burning or that later winter into the spring burning. What was the impact of that on turkey nesting? So that was that was a question that I, I was looking to answer specifically. And what we found out over time was that condition that I mentioned a little while ago, that if a place hadn't been burned within the previous three or three to five years, that it was unusable as brood habitat. So the most important thing was we needed to make sure we had as broad a burn window. This is probably a concept we'll have to introduce, but the longest opportunity possible to get prescribed fire done during the year. So burning further into the winter or even into the early spring months would give us another month or so, four or five weeks potentially, where we could put fire on the ground to improve that habitat. Now on the Homochitta and many forests are similar to the Homochitta, only a small percentage of their overall burns through the year were occurring during that spring or nesting season. So proportionally, there wasn't a lot of growing season fire going on, but it was a really important time of the year to get more burning done. So if we just looked at the base percentages across the board, there wasn't enough burning occurring during the nesting season to have a population-wide impact on the turkey population. And to the costs and benefits, our ability to improve brood habitat for four more weeks was much more beneficial than the few nests that would have been lost. Now, another really interesting thing I never expected to see is we had a couple of occasions where hens were nesting in areas that didn't have a lot of fuel buildup, just in leaf litter. Those hens actually stayed on their nest when prescribed fire came through and those nests weren't damaged. So that was a result that we really didn't expect. But even without that, just the scale of burning during the spring months wasn't going to have a population impact. And to the contrary, that additional burn window let us do better things for brood habitat, which is a really important driver for turkey populations. Same with grouse, same with quail. Gotcha. So, I mean, it sounds like in a lot of cases, what you're burning really wasn't suitable um, nesting brood habitat to, to begin with. So, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, and, and you know, there's another concept of this. We we had talked about it in the intro early on. This is this is disturbance. This is us kind of emulating natural disturbances. And you know, Mother Nature can be cruel in this with natural disturbances. You know, these aren't gentle systems. They're resilient systems. And turkeys have existed and evolved on these landscapes for tens of thousands of years with fire as part of it. And so one of the things that, that we do talk about is, you know, you've, you've got to break eggs to make an omelet. And yeah, we might lose a few nests. The overall benefit really outweighs 
that cost. Gotcha. We we've touched on it several times here as far as you know the the popularity or, or more commonality, I guess, of, of burning here in the south versus uh, in the north where you're at. Why is that? Why why is it traditionally you know much <laughs> less common to burn uh, up in your area than than down here in the south? Oh man, I'm I'm sure they're fantastic entire dissertations and series of books <laughs> that have been written. I'll give you, I'll give you my, uh, just kind of, uh, back of the napkin assessment. That, that'll work. I think. And one of the things we saw with habitat too, is with the long growing seasons in the South and just for the ability of the woods, uh, in the South to just accumulate so much growth during long, warm growing seasons that fire really was necessary for people to live on the land big time. If you think about whether it was travel and this isn't just indigenous people, but uh, the ability to have any cattle on the landscape. I mean, you can't even get through what they call Southern rough uh, pine stands that haven't been burned for a while. You can't even get through there if it hasn't been burned in a few years. So that's much more of an issue, I think, with the longer growing seasons and just the amount of fuel and material that can build up in those areas in the South. It, it just it was a more necessary part of day to day life, perhaps might have been part of it. Now, we you can also and I'm sure people have run run through all kinds of other socioeconomic factors of why uh, Smokey didn't get such a. Smoky Bear didn't get such a good foothold, especially <laughs> in the South. But I, just the utility of fire and uh, the necessity of it, I think, is a little bit greater in the South, just for for human way of life. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess I hadn't really thought of that before, but you know, it was probably it was popularized probably well before there were uh, you know tractors and bush hogs on on every farm. You know, to be able to control some of that. Um, woody encroachment and stuff that that fire can do so easily so for sure yes yep that's that's interesting and and to compare it not to say there isn't a burning culture in the the mid-atlantic in the northeast because i was just fascinated by stories when we first started our fire program and we were trying to figure out how long had it been since fire was on a lot of these landscapes and for some of them it was surprisingly recent and we were finding that up until the mid fifties, people had been burning a lot of these places, especially for things like blueberry and huckleberry production. So people living on the land for a long time knew that you were only going to get blueberries and huckleberries. If you were burning off those mountaintops every three, five, seven years or so. So it was actually blueberry pickers had been burning well into the, to the fifties before they too were, were snuffed out. So some of that cultural burning was popular here as well. I wanted to take just a quick break from the interview to let you know that the work we do at the national deer association wouldn't be possible without the support from partners like Johnny Morris, Bass Pro Shops and Cabela's and their customers throughout North America. A grant from Bass Pro Shops and Cabela's outdoor fund is supporting NDA's national initiative called Improving Access, Habitat, and Deer Hunting on Public Lands. We have a goal of improving 1 million acres of federal and state-controlled lands by 2026. Hey, this grant is directly accelerating work in this initiative 
to address force vigor and access issues in six states. In the end, we'll address declines in deer hunter numbers, habitat quality, and hunter access, helping to improve wildlife conservation for generations to come. Now back to the show. So you've touched on you know, some of the benefits of, of prescribed fire, but how, I guess, how, how would an individual landowner know if their property is, is going to benefit from burning? I guess what, what types of, of habitats and, and properties are, are going to benefit from burning in general? Well, just by, by the numbers and the probability, all of them. this is this is that that across the board disturbance factor and you know i I say that pretty seriously i've got uh, a small property here and you know if if anybody even just has a one acre field that's probably going to benefit well it is going to benefit from from burning especially if you're trying to manage that field for wildlife habitat even a small woodlot with some oaks and hickories in it. There's no doubt that that would benefit from the use of prescribed fire. Now, to the details of that, uh, you want to get a, a consultant, a consulting forester, or a habitat consultant to come out and tell you the exact what's, why's, and when's of that. <laughs> but the odds are that your property has something that will benefit from prescribed fire. Gotcha. Okay, so so we've uh, we've convinced some of our listeners now, hopefully that that prescribed fire could could benefit their their hunting land. But I'm sure many of them probably still have some concerns in their mind. So let's uh, let's address a few of those, starting with you know the the person that's thinking, okay, this this sounds great, but how do I ensure I don't you know burn up more than I intended to, including you know my neighbor's property? Yeah, that, that's that's the central. <laughs> The the central um, challenge, issue, concern for all of this, because you know what, for a couple of generations, like we were just talking about, that um, that understanding of how to burn has been lost. You know, that was something that culturally, like I said here, up until the mid 50s was passed from generation to generation. And certainly in the South as well, that you were you were learning to burn from the generation or two in front of you. And you might've been out burning that blueberry patch and uh, your granddad and your dad and your whole family might've been there. And with this interruption, certainly over the past 50, sometimes a hundred years, a lot of that knowledge has been, has been lost. And so it's, it's key for us and you working for a state agency, my work with a state agency, prescribed fire councils, across the board, getting people educated on how to do some some burning on their own is key, if the law provides for that. And I'm certain we're going to talk a little bit about some of that. <laughs> yeah. But uh, there are a lot of learn to burn programs as one here in Pennsylvania where, uh, and Kip Adams has been part of this with NDA. NDA does such a great job and with the core of your business model being outreach and education uh, it's groups like NDA that can really put some of these field days together and teach people how to burn and how to do it safely. Yeah. It's a massive it's, undertaking. Massive it undertaking. Is. It is. Yeah, and that that was something else that uh I saw a big difference in going from from Kentucky. Again, we were burning mostly fields in Kentucky and and we always made sure, you know, we had those nice big wide disc fire breaks. <laughs> 
And, and then I came down here and, you know, a leaf blower going through the, going through the woods, you know, with a, a nice little two or three foot wide blown fire break is, is good yeah. enough. So uh, big, big, big difference there. Well, it comes with experience. That's really important. Having seen a lot of fire and, you know, that experience and with an agency, the growth of your program. So over, over the time that we were building our program, all of our crews went from basically no experience to just me, for example, at the point where I left state service, I had over a thousand hours of active work on fires. So there's a lot of opportunity to get familiar with fire behavior and kind of predict and almost develop the sixth sense for what fire is going to do. But you're right, during those early days, and I still, man, I still really appreciate about an eight or 10 foot wide disc break. <laughs> <laughs> but as we gained experience, then we did realize that, you know what, we can take a leaf blower in here, blow out a line and be just fine. Yeah. Yeah. And it all goes back to what we said earlier. Uh, and a, a lot of times, you know, you're, you're choosing conditions to where this is going to be a very underwhelming fire, <laughs> you know, just creeping along. And, uh, you know, you're not going to be dealing with with high flame height and embers going over fire breaks and, and that kind of stuff. If, if you do it and plan it right. So that's what it all comes you know. down to. And so you, you kind of touched there on the next thing that I was going to ask about. Another concern the person might have is, is can I legally do this? And, and what do I need to ensure that I'm I'm doing this legally? So can you touch on that? Because, you know, I know, you know, there where you're at and, and there in the north in general. You know, like you said, it's the, the the popularity of prescribed fire is kind of just now, just now developing, and and I'm sure that uh, in some cases the laws probably haven't haven't caught up with with that interest and need at, at this point. So what what what's the legalities of, of burning in the north, and uh, or is it legal everywhere? Yeah, and here you know, not certainly this this doesn't represent <laughs> actionable legal advice. So I'll speak in, in generalities and everybody has to really get to know specifically uh, what the liability and what the, the legal parts are in their state. But again, speaking in generalities and just for a compare and contrast, when we first started doing this work in Pennsylvania and I had just come from Tennessee and in Pennsylvania, you were criminally and civilly liable if you set a fire that did any kind of damage. So it was essentially the only laws on the books that covered anything related to prescribed fire were arson. And if you set that fire, you were liable criminally and civilly as a, an arsonist. That's pretty extreme. <laughs> yeah. Comparatively, yeah. the state I had just left, you could go down to the hardware store and get your burn permit for the day. And you that was it. So, and that's the broad spectrum of laws and how how they handle prescribed fire. We clearly knew that if we were going to start using prescribed fire in Pennsylvania in this case, that was going to be the first step. So we weren't on the fire line. We weren't disking brakes. We were down at the state capitol trying to build a coalition to get this law changed. And we were able to do that. And we talked about the habitat benefits. We talked about the economics, the importance, the um, the natural use of prescribed fire. And in June or July of 2009, 
Prior to that, we got sponsors, bipartisan sponsors of the bill. In July of 2009, the Prescribed Burning Practices Act was passed. Here was the important part, unanimously. Nice. In the state. There wasn't and still isn't anything unanimous bipartisan going on. Oh, no. But Prescribed Fire made so much sense. And we did that office by office, one-on-one kind of education of the importance of fire and what it meant for the state. So now we had the Prescribed Burn Practices Act that said, if you're following these certain standards and you have a burn plan that meets these standards, then you are afforded some level of liability protection and you're no longer criminally liable if something goes wrong. Huge, huge first step that was a prerequisite for anything we would do after. Yeah. So that that remains the challenge then. So now you have this set of standards. And as you know, coming from the the public sector side, a lot of that follows what we call NWCG, the National Wildfire uh, Coordinating Group. And that is the strictest set of training standards and experience on the fire line to get to various levels. NWCG is a really arduous training regimen. So initially when we started, our standards required somebody to be NWCG certified essentially before they could burn. Well, for your average consulting forester or certainly landowner, that wasn't attainable. So this is something we're still working through now How can we have a level of certification that ensures people have attended the Learn to Burn? Um, They've been mentored. They've seen fire. They're a safe practitioner and and, in very moderated conditions. How can we get to that next level where the the training standards are actually attainable by landowners or regular people who aren't in state agency service? That's, That's still the current challenge now. And Kip... With NDA, we'll tell you this, and and he's on the the inside of trying to figure a lot of that out through Pennsylvania's Prescribed Fire Council. Yeah, and is that uh, again? I know you can't speak to to every state, but it, it, I mean, is that is there a pretty similar story? I guess across the the north and northeast, is that kind of standard? Just the- yeah, it is, and even the Midwest too. And it it seems that the organizations that have cropped up are the state prescribed fire councils, which are a collection of usually private consultants, state agency folks, federal agency folks from the state. Ours had representation from across the board of stakeholders interested in making sure we could safely do prescribed fire. So the first place to go look is your state prescribed fire council if you have one, because they're going to be in the know and probably have links for you into the state standards, the applicable laws. Some of them even have um, lists of contractors who will come and help you with burning. So I really have to give a shout out to all the volunteer work that's done through our state prescribed fire councils. It's a great resource. Good, good. It was the first thing that we did here before we went to the state house and all that stuff. We stood up a prescribed fire council. And then it wasn't any particular agency or interest that was pushing the legislation. It was the prescribed fire council, which was a collection of all stakeholders. So that's that's how we were able to get the support. Yeah. Well, you, yeah, you, you know, you're doing something right when you get get both 
both parties to agree on a piece of legislation because oh, like you yeah. said that's that's uh that's just about impossible these days so but i guess as as a th- a third concern um what about the 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 landowner who uh you know sees their timber as an investment with with plans of of selling it off over time um will will prescribe fire you know damage those trees or, or reduce their marketable value it could but again, when we're looking at our objectives, this is the first step in any prescribed fire plan is what, what are the landowner's objectives? And if those objectives are to continue growth of veneer quality, oak or maple or whatever they have on the property, then we're going to need to consider that when we think about the range of conditions during which we can burn or some of the pre-burn actions we could take to make sure those objectives are met. So uh, again, we don't want, in most cases, a fire where the flame heights are six feet tall, licking up the side of that red oak tree that you want for a veneer log and potentially damaging it at at that quality level. We're going to want to make sure we've got a very low intensity fire that isn't impacting the bowl of that tree at all, if possible. So I'm one of these landowners right now looking at, I've been managing here. I've got some sugar maple scattered through the property that I want to keep growing because I'd like to tap it in a few years. I'm calling it my retirement sugar bush. By the time I'm retired, those seven inch trees right now, because I've been releasing them, are going to be big enough to tap. I don't want to scorch them with fire. My burn units are going to be small enough that, and uh, there are few enough sugar maple trees. I'm just going to leaf blow a little bit around them before I burn those units. So all those objectives can definitely be met. You just need to be very clear about what they are when you start into your burn plan. Okay. Yep. That makes sense. So for those who, you know, may be interested at this point in in incorporating scrap fire on their property, can you kind of walk us through a a typical burn? And obviously, I know this is going to vary, you know, depending on a lot of factors, terrain and fuel types and location, all that. But just so the listeners kind of have an idea of, of what's involved in this process, can can you kind of just walk us through um, what, what a typical berm would would include, uh, including, you know, starting with, you know, getting permits or, or whatever you might need to, <laughs> to make it happen legally. Right. Right. Yeah. So there's the permitting piece, being sure you understand all that. Uh, every successful prescribed burn starts with a good burn plan of some sort. So you've done all your planning. Uh, and then there's a lot of prep work too. And you and I had talked about that. It can range everything from uh, leaf blowing out, some fire breaks to disking. So you've got to kind of have your, your infrastructure set and your units defined. And this is all well in advance of burn day. Then when it comes down to burn day, you've got to have your, uh, what in the fire world we call our cash, our cash of tools. So you'll need a few people uh, that are appropriately trained per your state standards. Some trained people to help you on the fire line to make sure that thing stays in the box. And as we said, on a great day of prescribed burning, you're going to be out there leaning on that rake. (laughs) Yeah. Just leaning on the rake, watching that fire back away from those fire breaks that you put in. And you're just there 
the way I like to think about it is you have people there and, and maybe some kind of a four wheeler with a, a tank with some water on it. And of course the backpack tanks with water, those are all there as contingencies. If everything goes right and according to our plan and our conditions are like we laid them out, we're not going to spray a single bit of water. We're never going to move from leaning on that rake because that fire is just in the burn unit doing what we want it to do. Now, maybe after the fire, we'll rake up a little bit and spray some water to make sure that there isn't anything still actively hot in that burn unit. But overall, having that equipment and those people there is just to ensure that you can address something unexpected if it should go wrong. Yeah, and you can... From my experience, you, you can never have too much help on a burn. I mean, the more the more eyes you have on that uh, around it, then uh, the, the better off you are for sure. Well, this is the challenge. And I'm speaking to you here as a small landowner that's, you know, doesn't have state resources anymore. And I'm just like anybody else trying to get fire done. And the availability of people is the biggest challenge. Uh, there's a wildland fire crew here in the county. And I thought that would be a a great way to get people to come out and help me burn. Availability became an issue. So right now, (laughs) I laugh at this, it makes me laugh. I'm getting all my kids certified, you know? So having my family available to do it, my oldest daughter's 19, I have a middle daughter who will soon be 16. Uh, If I can get them trained up, that'll be two great people to have me helping. So getting that help is a challenge. And the way this has been addressed in places that are doing this well, honestly, is through prescribed burn associations, where there's this collection of neighbors and adjacent landowners who go in together in kind of a cooperative and help each other burn on each other's land. And they've got a cache, you know, in best cases, it's a little trailer where everybody's pitched in, you got your rakes and your backpack sprayers in there. And these prescribed burn associations, it's neighbors helping neighbors do the burning, which as a throwback is how it happened historically when cultural burning was happening. Yeah, that, that's a great idea. Yeah, because, uh, yeah, like, like you mentioned, I mean, there, <clears throat> some of the some of the state agencies and, and uh, NGOs down here, you know, offer some assistance or equipment or, or that kind of thing. But, uh, you know, it, it's it's few and far between and, and you got a lot of folks, you know, a lot of demand for, for that equipment. So yeah, that's, I like that idea of, of ha- just kind of having those uh, community associations where you could share the equipment and, and the manpower. That's, yeah, that's really cool. We, as the rough grouse society, American Woodcock society, we recently invested in this idea and as a key NGO partner, we applied for some funding Uh, to help with this kind of thing, to stand up a prescribed burn association in Western North Carolina. So we pursued some funding, then that funding can be available for equipment, for training, to help stand up that prescribed burn association. So this is somewhere where the sector that we're in now, Brian, and the nonprofit NGO sector, we can help make a difference in giving people capacity to do this kind of stuff. Yeah. Good deal. So you, you touched on, or you mentioned a, a burn plan there. What what kind of things, what kind of information are you going to need to include on a burn plan? 
That's another one of those details that will depend. Is there a state standard or requirement or permitting requirement for what goes into a burn plant? In most cases, yes, there will be. But as speaking in generalities, you're going to need in that burn plan to have some descriptions and maps of your burn units. Where are they on the landscape? How big are they? You're going to need a description in there of what your fire breaks are like. Are they disc breaks? Are they hand, hand blown? lines and then you're going to need to have pretty detailed descriptions of the conditions where you will burn and kind of setting your own your own um guidelines or, or parameters sideboards however you want to describe this for conditions that you'll burn in so for example a really important condition to consider is relative humidity and so your burn plan may say we're not going to burn if the relative humidity is at or forecast to go below 35%. And the maximum humidity that we can burn at to meet our objectives might be 65%. So now we have that, this is where prescribed fire comes in as, a, as the name. We have a prescription during which we can go out and safely do that burn based on our breaks and on the condition of the landscape or the fuels in those burn units. So now we know we can look at a forecast and say, yep, tomorrow the relative humidity is supposed to bottom out at about 42%. Winds are supposed to be light out of the southeast. Yep, we're within our pre prescription parameters. We can have a safe burn day tomorrow. Those are the things that your burn plan formalizes. How many people you need on the line? What kind of equipment are you going to need to safely burn on that day? What are the required uh, training requirements of those people? Uh, does your state standard require that you have a certified burn boss? And that definition of a burn boss uh, could change state from state. So those are the things that your burn plan as a document really formalizes for you. And that's important. Oh, yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, it'll make you think about things you, you might have otherwise overlooked, even, you know, what is my smoke going going to impact? You know, what oh, sure. look, a, a kind of a bird's eye, getting that bird's eye view of the property and beyond just what you're burning. And, and hey, you know, is, is my smoke going to, you know, go across the highway or or over to a, a nursing home or, you know, what, whatever the case may be. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot of things you have to consider and, and that burn plan will kind of help you you know, focus on those, those things. I'm so glad you mentioned the smoke factor uh, because that, that is really key. And in most cases, honestly, can be one of the biggest risk factors on a prescribed fire. I'm probably going to be more concerned, uh, not so much about fire getting away and making a big run and, and burning down someone's shed. I'm going to be more attentive probably to those smoke conditions. Where's my smoke going? What are the downwind impacts? Like you said, is it going to obscure a road? Are there smoke sensitive places like an elementary school uh, where the kids are out for recess? Smoke becomes a really important thing to think about. Yeah. Yeah. It's been, I don't, I haven't, don't think I've heard of any, at least here, fortunately here in the last couple of years, but it wasn't that long ago. I think that was in Florida where uh, like an interstate got smoked out. You know, the, the smoke had settled down on the road at night and, uh, you know, caused some, I think, some fatalities, uh, some some 
accidents, but yeah, coming yeah, back definitely. to those weather weather conditions, and I mentioned humidity, wind. One of the things that we looked at, and you can get this from the National Weather Service, is kind of the, we call it the mixing height that gives you an idea for those atmospheric conditions on that day. Is that smoke column going to, and here's a perfect day, the smoke column goes straight up, it catches a transport wind way up high in the atmosphere, and the smoke then dissipates. The worst case scenario uh, is like the one you described where maybe that smoke goes up, but later in the day, you have some kind of atmospheric condition that pushes it back down and just lays it on a highway. So we're still really looking at our weather parameters and our weather prescription trying to avoid that latter scenario. Yeah. Yeah. And I know there's folks probably listening to this thinking, man, it it sounds complicated. And uh, it it is. And that's, that's why. You know, like we've talked about here today, you, you need that training or at least to be working with someone that has that training to that that is taking all these things into consideration. It's it's definitely not something, you know, you just want to head out to the back 40 with some some matches and diesel fuel to, to, to burn a block of uh, your property. You know, you got to you have to know what you're doing uh, before you before you start into this. So there's so much of it that comes with experience you know and described it at some point here in our discussion as a sixth sense but uh, that sixth sense just being you've seen enough fire you've seen enough smoke to be able to kind of predict what it's what it's going to do when you pick up that wind shift or as we say on the fire line you know our smoke's starting to lay down that's all with experience on the fire on the fire line so you can do some in-class training that'll give you the concepts then ultimately it's about getting out there and doing it. And preferably, just like anything else related to hunting, your learning curve is so much shorter if you can do it with a mentor who's walking you through it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, again, we've, we've touched on this a little bit as well as far as the, the timing of burning. And, uh, you know, here in the South, we do a lot of, you know, that January to to March, just prior to turkey season, or at least when I was with the DNR, that was kind of our, our key burning times. Although, you know, we're seeing a lot more talk and, and a lot more use of growing season burns. But uh, how does how is that in the in the north? Uh, I know, you know, during a lot of that time, uh, that January and February, I'm, I'm guessing you guys have snow on the ground. It'd be be kind of hard to burn during those those times of the year. So what what's the burning season look like um, in, in the northern part of the country? Burn this idea of burn window is key, and you'll hear it repeated time and again as a limiting factor in our ability to burn, especially in the the north. Uh, because you're right, you've got at times when you're in the south, you know, January, and you're just ramping up the winter burning program. Right, we might be under uh, under snow, and so then once that snow melts off, then we have a very quick dry out. Sometimes that's associated with windy conditions in March. That's the windy month here. So we have a really limited window when we can get burning done. With that said, I'm looking out my window right now and there isn't any snow on the ground. So what we've been able to do with changing conditions and especially as little snow as we've been getting is expanding our burn window too in the north into January and February where we can. One of the best days of burning, you talk about leaning on your rake, you didn't even need to hold a rake. We went out and just hit this sweet spot where 
the snow had melted off. We still had a little bit of snow on the brakes, but it had all melted off and it had dried out within the burn unit. So we had snow fire breaks. Nice. <laughs> You're not going to get that in Georgia very often. No, huh? no, that's, that's for sure. That was a great fire break. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That'd be hard to so, beat there. And you, you brought up something with communicating about fire and hunting seasons opening. When we first started, this was a huge concern. This is going to upset hunters. How can we limit access to our public lands for doing fire? And we found that there was actually a lot of receptivity for that because we had communicated. We had uh, a lot of legwork, and this is with the prescribed fire council saying, we are burning to improve Let's take whitetail habitat. That's why we have a million hunters in Pennsylvania, because of whitetails. We're burning to improve carrying capacity for deer. This is going to result in more browse. This is going to result in better hunting. Uh, during the day of the, you can come in here before the burn. You can come in here immediately after the burn. During the day of the burn, we're going to have to limit access to this area. But here are going to be the benefits. And we spent a lot of time communicating that and using social media. And we actually got to the point where we would put out a note on social media saying, everybody heads up, there's going to be a prescribed burn on State Game Lands 33 tomorrow. This area will be limited access. We didn't get a, a lot of hate comments on those posts, but we got things like, well, when are you going to come burn on State Game Lands 281? <laughs> then you know you're in that sweet spot. Like, all right, we, we got it. But it was that communication that let us, again, broaden the window where before we might have thought we needed to stop at the start of turkey season. Now we can burn with pre-notifications and there's a good online map through turkey season, just letting people know where access might be limited on any given day. Yeah. And how long do y'all continue to burn? Are you Are you seeing, you know, growing season burns where you're at or is... You know, is that an option or? Uh, yeah, growing season burns can be really effective too. We can talk about the ecological piece in addition to just adding a month to your burn window. <clears throat> but let me take one example of this to start uh, spelling out the difference in some of the habitats here and what we're trying to accomplish. Uh, let's take a recently harvested oak, mixed oak forest. And within all those oak seedlings are a whole bunch of red maple and black birch seedlings. And if we just let that area keep going as it is, it's not going to have as much oak in it as we would like. It's going to have more red maple and birch uh, than it would have naturally. So it's time for prescribed fire. And what that fire is going to do then is it's going to top kill all those trees, including the oak. But the oak, having evolved with fire, is going to re-sprout really aggressively and take off after that fire. On the other side of the spectrum, the red maple and the birch and the less, as we call them, fire-tolerant species aren't going to respond as well as the oak. So that one fire is given the competitive advantage to the oak seedlings in that area where we had done habitat work. Now, so now the key... Is that growing season or is that growing season you're talking about now? Or is this? Okay. So the next step is our best ability to hammer on those undesirable species, black birch in this case, or red maple, 
our best ability to really hammer them occurs after they've leafed out. Okay. So we're talking about in the early growing season. So we can have our greatest habitat impact in those cases on into the growing season, where if we burned them midwinter when everything was dormant, we wouldn't have as heavy an impact on what we're trying to kill back. Right. Yep. Same same thing we see down here, except it's for us, it's the sweet gum, you know, they were trying to trying to knock back. But yeah, if you can if you can catch it once it's leafed out, you, you're going to have a lot, a uh, lot better results than than burning it during the dormant season. Or, or another one there, even within uh, pine species, is there was a lot of growing season burning being done on the homochitta because it was more lethal during the growing season to loblolly. So in those areas where we were trying to restore favor things to longleaf over loblolly, uh, even in, in similar pines, growing season fire was hitting that loblolly harder. So same idea. Well, I guess, um, you know, as we, as we kind of wrap things up here, do, do we, do we miss anything key in, in regards to prescribed fire and, and maybe particularly in the more Northern part of the U S in anything we didn't touch on that you can think of? No, can I call you tomorrow morning when I'm like, oh, <laughs> yeah. man. Brian, I forgot to talk about. Oh shoot! <laughs> oh yeah, that trust me, that never fails. As, as soon as I hang up the phone, I'm like, oh, I forgot to ask him about this. Yeah. You know, one of the other things, just real quick, and I put fire here in the north into two general categories as far as the forest is concerned. So there are the use of fire in conjunction with timber harvest. And our ability to to actively manage our forests, especially with timber harvest, is really important. And so it's not an either or with fire. Like you can do commercial timber sales or you can use fire. We bo- use both in tandem. And so it could be pre-burning an oak stand to make sure that those young oak seedlings are competitive before we do the harvest. It could be some burning after a commercial harvest, like I just described, uh, again, to give those favorable species a competitive advantage. So it's definitely an and proposition burning in mixed hardwood forests with fire and timber sales. Now, there are other, our, our goal overall as habitat managers, and certainly as Rough Grouse Society, American Woodcock Society, is to diversify the habitat and forest landscapes. That means having a good mix of young, middle-aged, and old forest. So fire is really key. If we can't harvest an oak stand because we're worried about what will grow back, but we can use fire to give us assurances that we're going to get what we want back, fire is that key difference maker in our ability to diversify that forest landscape. Then there's a really another really interesting piece to that where we can use fire and forest systems in places we really can't harvest, whether it's because it's not accessible or there's really no merchantable timber there. And one example would be our pitch pine scrub oak habitats here needs that frequent disturbance. In that case, that's a fire only scenario. We can't do commercial timber sales. It's way too expensive to do hand cutting or grinding with large machines fires our only option to set back succession in some of those areas so when we look at whole landscapes and think of a, a 30,000 acre landscape on public lands 
we're looking at how fire incorporates with all of the other things that we need to do on those landscapes. And sometimes fire is going to be a standalone treatment. Many times fire is going to be an and treatment with timber harvest. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I can't remember. You know, I've, I've seen some research on that and I, I can't remember if that was out of University of Tennessee with Craig Harper or whether that was may have been Mississippi State or maybe both. But I, I've seen some documentation on that of of just how much more when, when you compare just burning a, a, a woodlot or thinning a woodlot or the combination of the two, um, the amount of forage produced by the combination of the two is, is way more than, than either, or, you know, the individual processes. So. Absolutely. Yeah, and Dr. Is. Harper, there's a great resource and we've just been really fortunate to have him in this profession, especially in his role as an extension wildlife specialist. I mean, that's, you know, so it's, he's doing this great research and also has made sure that it's gotten out there. And over the past, two decades, uh, that work coming out of University of Tennessee Extension and the research he's done has really helped us advance prescribed fire use. So tip of the hat to Dr. Harper, <laughs> and he's been involved with NDA for a long time. Oh, yeah. 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 And it, it, I tell you, it's great to see, uh, you know, something, something, you know, formerly QDMA and NDA, something we've tried to do all along is, is you know, kind of keep an eye on, on research that impacts, you know, deer and, and habitat management and, and to get that out to the masses, you know, in a easily digestible form. But, you know, a lot of these universities now are just doing a great job of, of that themselves and, and putting out Mississippi state being, being one of them for sure, you know, getting that information out to the general public and to, to hunters and, and land managers in, in a, you know, in a form that, uh, that they can, easily digest and, and put in, put into practice. Um, not, not all the scientific speak and statistical analysis, but you know, here's what you, you can do to improve your property. So. That's, uh, that's yeah. so key. And even in the fire world, you know, we we're just prone to, and I'm checking myself up on our whole discussion here, prone to kind of the jargon, you know, with the, <laughs> the technical speak. So yeah, we do. We have to, we have to boil it down in terms that, that people can understand an extension at our land grant universities just does an incredible job. And you mentioned a couple institutions that are really great at it. Yeah. Well, Ben, I, man, I appreciate you carving out time to, to come onto the show here and, and talk uh, prescribed fire with us for those who would like to um, maybe keep up with you or to learn more about what the uh, rough grouse society is doing and what they're all about. What's the, uh, what's the best way for them to do that? You know, it would it would be fantastic if NDA members or others who are listening to this podcast were uh, moved to run over to the RGS and AWS website and, and pitch in that 35 bucks and become a member of RGS and AWS. Uh, that's the best way to keep track of what we're doing, but also to really support this kind of work. And I don't miss an opportunity to say that if I go to a property and landowner A wants to manage it for whitetails, certainly not uncommon. Uh, landowner B wants to manage it for bird watching and wildlife viewing opportunity. Landowner C wants to manage it for rough grouse. 
my management plan there and the use of forest management and prescribed fire is going to be nearly identical across those three properties. So whether you're interested in, in whitetails or rough grouse, the work that we do advocating for forest management and prescribed fire, you know, the rough grouse is just our flagship species. They're our, our ambassador. But what's good for the grouse is good for the whitetail and good for a whole bunch of other species. So for us, we would love to get a bunch of deer hunter members who maybe never have hunted or even seen a rough grouse because of the fact that we're promoting for forest management that's good for all wildlife. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, there's a, t- a ton of overlap there when it comes to management practices, like you said. No doubt. That's why it's so much fun to work with groups like NDA and partners, NWTF. So really an honor to be on here with you, Brian. I, I appreciate it. And this is fun for me. I don't get to, you know, get off of this call and and dig into other the other things that go with with this job. But being able to think about habitat practices and especially prescribed fire for an hour with you is fantastic. I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. Not a problem at all. That's, that's the best part about uh, getting to host this podcast is, is being able to get uh, guys on here that, that know uh, a lot more about topics than I do and, and pick their brains. So it's and stuff, generally stuff that, that I'm interested in myself and I want to learn more about. So yeah, I get the, I get my own personal benefit out of it as well. So I've, I've certainly uh, enjoyed the conversation with you and, yeah, you you're pretty well versed in this topic in particular, so we really appreciate you. Yeah, I do. Uh, I do enjoy some prescribed fire. Uh, uh, that's that's one of the things I do miss about uh, public land work is in uh, this time of year. This is this is when I be <laughs> be out there yeah. here in uh, here in Georgia working on public lands. Um, if you get a a pretty day anytime between you know January and and the end of March, you're you're probably going to be burning something somewhere. All right, that wraps up our interview with Ben Jones. Uh, Thanks so much for checking out this episode of the Deer Season 365 podcast. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the show. You know, you can find us on all the popular podcasting platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and and several more. So about anywhere you could listen uh, listen to podcasts, you should be able to find us there. Or you can just go to DeerAssociation.com slash podcast and subscribe directly from our website. Uh, Hey, we'd also love it if you take just a second to leave us a five-star rating or a written review. You know, those both help us uh, climb the the podcasting charts and be more visible to, to future listeners. So we would appreciate any support you could give us there. For more information about the National Deer Association, you can visit our website again at DeerAssociation.com. From there, you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter and uh, hey, just enjoy some of our several hundred articles of, of free content right there on our website, covering everything from hunting strategy to food plots, habitat improvement, um, deer management, you name it. Uh, if it's deer hunting or deer management related, we got some good content right there on our website available to you. So check that out. And of course, you can always find us on all the popular social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Deer Association. So again, thanks for listening to the Deer Season 365 podcast, the podcast where deer season never ends.